morning, but it was good to be with you here today. Uh, I've been known for being directionally challenged, uh, and some of you probably talked to my wife about that, and I've never been lost in life, uh, so I really claim the quote from Davy Crockett, the frontiersman. He said, I've never been lost, but I've been mighty confused for two or three days. And that's uh, the case with me in different areas. And so imagine with me that uh, we were on a hike together out in the woods, and you know, knew about uh, my ability to get lost very easily, and so you gave me a compass. Of course, now you give me a handheld GPS with waypoints and all that. Just, just bear with me here. You gave me a compass, okay? And uh, it was to find my way back uh, if I got confused, and uh, but inevitably I would get lost, and uh, you would find me, and you got quite aggravated with me because you'd say, "Why didn't you use the compass I gave you? It would have saved me a lot of trouble looking for you." And uh, my response would be, "Well, I didn't uh, dare to use it because I wanted to go north, and as hard as I tried to make the needle aim in that direction, it just kept pointing southwest." And uh, so then I threw the compass away because I knew which way was north and my own personal persuasion about the direction of north caused me to throw the compass away. And so I tossed it aside and didn't use it. Uh, well, you know how ridiculous that would sound, uh, actually. And, uh, but the Christian life, there is a true north. And I think of that, just one phrase out of Psalm 23, the very familiar Psalm, Psalm 23.3, where the psalmist writes, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice the purpose of God leading us in paths of righteousness. Now, for the Hebrew mind, when that was written, the Hebrew mind, the path was a place of safety, of direction. Uh, we Americans, we North Americans and Westerners tend to think of boundaries as something that is uh, awful and something that's trying to hinder us and keep us from going where we really want to go. And yet God knows best. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness and notice the purpose for his name's sake. For God's glory and for the good of his people as he protects us there. Well, perhaps uh, you have spent some time, some confusing times in life, wondering about what God is doing, about God's will for your life, how to live out the Christian life. Uh, and it's uh, an issue that I think all of us from time to time will deal with because we are faced with uh, unseen circumstances and perhaps difficulties and traumas uh, that we did not anticipate and therefore uh, we're wondering what God is doing. God sustains us. Uh, his breath of his Holy Spirit empowers us. As Peter tells us, he gives us the power to live lives of godliness every day. And yet within his moral boundaries, boundaries we each have an opportunity and a responsibility and a great blessing of determining our course. You know, there's this ability that he gives us. We call it, some call it, philosophers call it free will. But he has given the human beings, his creation, the ability to make choices within a realm. And some of those choices are contrary to God's will. Uh, we see in scripture that God has a determined will and gravity would be a determined will. And, uh, but there's also desired will. God desires all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And yet we know that that does not always happen. That's his desired will. Jeremiah, the great Old Testament prophet Jeremiah in chapter 7 of that book said, But this thing I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
and walk you in the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Even in the Old Testament, the great prophet Jeremiah understood and as he communicated God's words, that God had a plan and a purpose for each individual, and in that context, for the nation of Israel and for their ongoing well-being. Of course, we know that they drifted and they got off the path of righteousness many, many times, and yet God still loves them. And we live in the church age, beginning in Acts chapter 2 in the first century, and we know that the church over the centuries has drifted from God's will, and there are times where there are great struggles within this thing we call the church. And yet the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians chapter 4, Tammy set up uh, the context for us. Uh, we are going to be looking at verses 25 through 32 today. And in this passage is really the applicational passage of uh, chapters 1 through 3. It is ripe with application. If you're wondering how do I apply the position I have in Jesus Christ, here is where uh, the crux of it all is right here at the end of chapter 4. I've often said before that chapter 4 of this little letter of Ephesians is like uh, the Mount Everest of what it means to be the church. It is the acme, if you will, of how we are to live together and what the great blessings are and how we are to do this. Uh, those passages, that the passage, the few verses that Tammy uh, read for us, verses 20 through 24, in uh, that oh. paragraph there are three infinitives which uh, I know when I talk about grammar, everybody goes to sleep, and I'm in danger of that too, but it's important to understand because God communicated to us in human language, and he used the grammar and the rules of grammar and syntax and its structure so we can understand it in human language. But he talks there, he says, you lay aside the old self in verse 22, that's the first one. Verse 23, that you would be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the second one, verse 24, that you put on the new self, so there's this picture, this idea, which is reflected also in parallel passages in uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. This idea, this picture of taking off old grave clothes and putting on wedding garments. What a difference, isn't it? And we think of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, uh, resuscitated, if you will, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came out clothed in these grave clothes, and they unbound him, and I'm sure he put on a fine robe, and they celebrated as he came back from death. But James Montgomery Boyce, a, a, a pastor and a, a commentator, uh, wrote these words about uh, this idea about who does the taking off and the putting on, who does this, who renews who we are. Uh, they're translated as commands in most of our versions, and yet uh, there is no uh, Principle uh, grammatically in the New Testament. Anytime there are aorist infinitives, especially three in a row, used, it's always following a command verb or an imperative verb, and here it does not. And, uh, and the same is found in Colossians chapter 3. And so uh, these, these participles in Colossians and these infinitives here in Ephesians is something that has already happened, it has already been done. Voice writes, therefore, uh, in, in uh, verse 25, the word therefore adds nothing, but if the verbs in verses 23 through 24 are taken in a past or completed sense, as in the case of Colossians, then it makes sense. Believers are to follow certain Christian standards precisely because God has already made them new creatures in Christ by putting away the old nature and putting on the new nature. 
Now, this is incredibly important for you to understand and uh, for us to come to some agreement about what it means to live the Christian life. Because uh, Haddon Robinson has said it's more important to get people to think Christianly or biblically rather than to rather than to have them live religiously. Did you catch that? It is more important to get people to think biblically or Christianly than to act religiously. That's the difference between morality and purity. Yes, we are to be moral people, and morality is the outward expression of an inner heart, hopefully, but yet even people who do not know Jesus as their Savior can be moral people. Our foundations of our society are basically based on moral law, and yet that's not the same as purity, and the Apostle Paul is concerned about our walk in holiness. If you remember, if you've been with us in chapter 4, at the beginning uh, of chapter 4, down through verse 16, he's talking about living in unity together. This is a collective, corporate endeavor, this thing called the church. Yes, individuals make up the church, and we are responsible in our realm of influence within the church, but the whole is what he's talking about here, that all of us have responsibility. We are to live, or uses the metaphor, walk in unity. It's a lifestyle. And now, in, in chapter uh, 4 here, at the end of chapter 4, from verses 17 to the end, he's talking about how to live in holiness or purity and what is meant here. And uh, James Montgomery Boyce goes on to write about those verbs in those three verses that are before us here. Uh, this is an important point. The apostle is not merely using a new and higher standard of morality on people. This is an utterly futile thing. We cannot be genuinely better by mere moral persuasion. That is not it at all. Rather, Paul is demanding a high form of behavior precisely because something decisive has already taken place in our past, in our history. We have already been made new in Christ. That is why we should, we should and must act like it. Take off the gray clothes, put on the new clothes, the wedding garments, because it's already been done for us. It's like, uh, you, you know, if you show up at a wedding dressed like it was a funeral, people would wonder what's within. Or if you showed up at a funeral dressed like a wedding, they would wonder, that's just out of character. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at. Remember back in chapter 2, he tells us, verse 1, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is who we used to be. Whether you were saved at age 5 or age 55, you used to be at some point dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked in this unsaved, unredeemed condition. But in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, and then again in chapter 2, verse 11, but remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, he says that remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, verse 12, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, or far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he makes this distinction in our positional truth early on in this letter, and now he's saying, if you're a Christian, Act like it. Live like it. Uh, you're not the ones who put it on and take it off, but you have to live within the new position that you have in Christ. This is the direction he says. And so in verses 25, 
15 through 32, he gives us five different things. And there's three parts to each one of them. There's five characteristics that should reflect upon a Christian that should be expressive in the Christian life. And there are three items involved in each one of these. There's a negative command, there's a positive command, and then there's the reason we are to uh, act like Christians. And he'll tell us that in each one of the, these five things. But notice all of them, you will notice all of them are based upon the fact of relationships with other people. And how we relate to other people is reflective of our relationship and what Jesus Christ has done in our heart. The first one is found in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, that is the command, that's the negative prohibition. Do not lie. Do not be a liar, if you will. I was reading a story about a woman who had acquired great wealth in her life, and uh, she had quite a heritage, and she wanted a book written about her and her family. And so she hired a well-known author, and she engaged him in the assignment of uh, discovering and researching her family as far back as he could go. And uh, this author found out that one of her grandfathers, this woman's grandfathers, had received the death penalty and was electrocuted at Sing Sing Prison. And when he told her that he found this about that episode, and it would have to be included in the book if you're going to be truthful and honest, she pleaded with him, please tell this in a way that would veil the truth. And so when the book was published, uh, it said of this woman's grandfather, quote, one of her grandfathers occupied the chair of applied electricity in one of America's best-known institutions. <laughs> he was... He was very much attached to his position and literally died in the harness. <laughs> Veiling the truth. As believers, we're not to do that. You know, just this last week, we saw the White House communications director resign. A close confidant of our president, she resigned after admitting telling little white lies on behalf of the president. I have news for her and news for our government that there's no such thing as a little white lie. All lying is sin and contrary to who we are in Jesus Christ. Uh, this will be my comment on politics, but uh, Will Rogers back in the 1930s had it right. He said, how do you tell if a politician is lying? If his lips are moving, they're lying. And it should not be. It should not be, believe me. Because in Proverbs 26, 28 tells us this, a lying tongue hates those it crushes. And a flattering mouth works ruins. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue is the second one. And so that is the negative command. Be a truth teller. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. The positive command is tell the truth. In verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The positive command is to be a truth teller to one another, in other words, believers within the church, as well as our neighbors. And who's your neighbor? It's anybody you're in contact with is your neighbor, according to Mark chapter 12, verses 31. And the reason is because we're part of one another. John R. W. Stott writes that fellowship is built on trust and trust is built on truth. So falsehood, falsehoods undermines fellowship while truth strengthens it. And we all knew that every relationship, we all know that every relationship is based on truth and, and, and truth telling, isn't it? 
And so that is our command there, is to be truth tellers. We are members of one another. Uh, when the cells of your body lie to each other, you know, we call it cancer because they're out of control and they're destroying what is there. It's detrimental to the health of a physical body and it's also detrimental to the health of a spiritual body. Christ followers not only are commanded to tell the truth here, that should characterize us, but secondly, Christ followers control their anger, control their anger. And this is an echo out of Psalm chapter 4, verse 4 that the Apostle Paul is using. In verse 26, it says, Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Psalm 4, 4 says, Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Say la, as he says. Uh, do not be angry unrighteously, is what he's telling us. Uh, in baseball history, in 1894, the Baltimore Orioles went to Boston to play the Boston Bean Eaters. Isn't that amazing? I wish they would have kept that name, the Boston Bean Eaters. And, uh, but what happened that day was anything but a re routine baseball game. The Orioles' John McGraw got into a fight with the Boston third baseman. His name was <clears throat> Tommy Foghorn Tucker. I always like nicknames in the middle there. You know, that's kind of cool. But they got in a fight, and within minutes, players from both sides, both teams, joined in the brawl, and then the warfare quickly spread into the stands, the grandstands, and the fans were in the conflict. It went from bad to worse. Somebody set fire to the stands. The entire ballpark burned to the ground. Not only that, but the fire spread to 107 other Boston buildings as well. And all told, it said it burned over 12 acres of Boston just through that one fight. The negative prohibition here in verse 26 is literally, do not rampage, do not rampage. In verse 26, be angry yet do not sin. Uh, the Apostle Paul is telling us, and he's, he's quoting this, that uh, there is a, such a thing, there's an emotion, a good emotion given that it's called anger, but it is called righteous anger, sinless anger. The word here is a word that is used of this, this rage or this getting red in the face kind of anger, and uh, we are not to do that. The positive command is to be God-controlled. Anger is permitted for the right reasons. The word angry re re refers to a deep-seated determination and settled conviction. There are times because we seek justice and we can spot injustice in our culture, in our world, perhaps in our own environment that we want things made right. And so there are times to be angry, but yet it means that it should inspire our wrath necessarily. You know, the Lord Jesus expressed anger on several occasions. He was angry at the Pharisees who resented his healing the man who, uh, he, when he healed the man on the Sabbath day. He was angry at those who had turned the house of God into a place of merchandise in Matthew and John. And uh, he was angered by the fact that anything that misrepresented or maligned the heavenly father of the worship of true God. And so one of the measurements here is there are things that should make us angry, and yet they should be righteous things. We should be angry about God's character being maligned. Those are the kind of things. Dr. David Seaman writes, Anger is a divinely implanted emotion. Closely allied with our instinct for righteousness, it is designed to be used for constructive spiritual purposes. The person who cannot feel anger at evil is a person who lacks enthusiasm for the good. If you cannot hate wrong, it's very questionable whether you really love 
righteousness. The right kind of anger is wholesome, healthy, and good. And there is a place and a time. It tells us there in verse <coughs> excuse me, 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's the idea of deal with it quickly. It's the idea of dealing with what is the cause of the anger. And do not nurse the anger. It's like smoldering embers in a forest fire. You know, they can lay under the, the dust of the forest, under the needles, and lay there for a long time and finally erupt in the flame. And so why are we to do this? Why are we not to have unrighteous anger? And do not give the devil an opportunity in verse 27. Do not give the slanderer an opportunity, the diabolical one who falsely accuses the Christian before uh, the throne of God. It's interesting in that verse, in verse 27, which said, don't give any place to the devil is that when we take anger to bed with us, we don't deal with it, we allow it to simmer in our hearts, we give the devil a beachhead, if you will. The word place refers to a place of ground in our hearts. It's like a beachhead in a war where it's established. Unreconciled anger in our hearts gives Satan just the opening he needs to attack us and then to attack others through us. And when he's allowed a place in our lives, he will cause us to seek revenge in violation of the clear teaching of the Word of God. Uh, there was a Haitian pastor down in Haiti, and he was talking about this to his congregation, and he uses the following parable. He said, a certain man wanted to sell his house for $2,000. Another man wanted to buy it very badly, but because he was poor, he couldn't afford the full price. After much bargaining, the owner agreed to sell the house for half of the original price asked, with just one stipulation to the sale, that the seller would retain ownership of one small nail protruding from just over the top of the front door. After several years, the original owner wanted to buy the house back, but the new owner was unwilling to sell, so the first owner went out, found the carcass of a dead dog, and hung it from the single nail that he still owned. Soon the house became unlivable, and the family was forced to sell a house to the owner of the nail. This pastor's conclusion was, is if we leave the devil even one small peg in our life, he will return to hang his rotting garbage on it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. The problem with us is that we are seldom angry in the right way about the things and at the right moment and at the right time and the right amount. Benjamin Franklin said this about anger. He said, anger is never without a reason, but seldom with a good one. Seldom with a good one. Truthfulness, righteous anger are the believer's clothing, which brings us to the third mark of what it is to be called a Christian. Third is Christ's followers are honest. Look at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. The negative prohibition here is do not steal. It seems pretty... Uh, uh, transparent, doesn't it? I remember, and I, I like the story about uh, a business in Detroit. The employees received the following important inter-office memo. It went something like this, quote, the management re regrets that it has come to our attention that workers are dying on the job and are failing to fall down. This practice must cease as it becomes impossible to distinguish between death and the natural movement of the staff. Any employee found dead in an upright position will be dropped from the payroll, unquote. Do not steal. You know, it's, uh, I've read statistics about 
in, in, in manufacturing and businesses in the United States, how much time is wasted by employees and basically stolen from the, the companies. The positive command is to labor and doing good. And we think we would stop there. Okay, that's great. Yes, we are hard workers. We work hard at doing good. But what is the reason? The reason is found at the end of verse 28, shared with me. There is a purpose for accumulating uh, material things and wealth, to share with the needy. Truthfulness, righteous anger, honesty are to clothe the believer, believer, which brings us to the fourth mark, and that is to speak kindly in verses 29 through 30. In verse 29, it tells us, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That is the negative prohibition. Do not traffic. The idea here is in rotten speech, in speech that is not uh, lifting up and positive. And the positive command, second part of verse 29, is to build up others. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, uh, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. So the positive command is to build others up. It's that building metaphor when we're constructing something positive in our words are very powerful things as we know. The tongue is very powerful. James refers to that and tells us it is, it is like a, a, an untamed animal that can go one way or another. It's like sweet water and, and, and bad water, salty water at the same moment. And so this idea of how powerful the tongue is, the Christ followers should be marked by a kindness in their speech. So we are to be truthful, uh, express only righteous anger, kind speech, or to clothe us and the fifth mark is forgiveness in verses 31 through 32. Uh, well, talk to you. Let me go back uh, about this idea of this unwholesome word. And the reason is to give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit uh, of God for whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a person who can be grieved. We see the emotive qualities of God. We see God expressing anger. We see God grieving. And the Holy Spirit, who indwells the believer, can be grieved because of our sin, because of not following what God has given us to do. And so Christ followers, number five, is forgive and love others in verse 31. This negative prohibition is quite long here. There are six attitudes that the Apostle Paul writes about. First of all, he says, let all bitterness uh, not characterize us. Bitterness is smoldering resentment, which causes brooding grudges and an unforgiving spirit. Uh, bitterness will make you sick physically, it will harm you emotionally, it will destroy your relationship with other people, it will demolish you spiritually because you will be worshiping your own victimhood and your own pain. And so the negative prohibition is to avoid bitterness, this root of bitterness because of anger, unrighteous anger that comes into our lives. Second one is wrath, wild rage which is selfly, selfishly, uh, selfishly based. Uh, the word refers to a passion of the moment. Uh, we get our words thumonuclear from the Greek word that's behind this, and it carries the idea of a sudden violent explosion of anger. It speaks of wild rage. We would refer to this as this guy flew off the handle all of a sudden, so avoid wrath. And anger here is that settled inward resentment, and this is the unrighteous anger we are to avoid. It refers to a deep, brooding, resentful feeling, an internal smoldering, and it builds and builds and builds, and it has the picture of becoming red-faced 
the picture of a person who clenches his fist, becomes red in the face, and yet says nothing and does nothing out of anger. This anger is internalized. And then clamor, that is the violent outburst. So that is a public example of a clamor that comes forth. The fifth one is evil speaking, slanderous whispers. Uh, it is translated often, this word is translated often in the New Testament, <coughs> blaspheme, to blaspheme somebody else. The word speaks of speech that is slanderous or that is injurious to another's good name. Uh, we are guilty of evil speech when we do that, blaspheming others. And then number six, malice is kind of a catch-all phrase that the Apostle Paul uses, and it's evil in general. And the word itself refers to evil. It's ill will towards another that manifests itself in a desire to injure them. And so those are the, that's the negative pro prohibition, to avoid these six attitudes. And the positive command is found in verse 32. In verse 32, he says, be kind to one another. That's the first one. Tender-hearted, that's the second one, and forgiving each other. The word kind is good, pleasant, gracious in dealing with one another. Tender-hearted is compassionate uh, towards others. It is the idea of literally feeling what another person is going through in the depth of our being. Uh, it means to have a, a strong character about you that you are concerned for others, empathy in the needs of others, and then forgiving each other refers to a pardon extended to an offending party. Uh, the whole issue of forgiveness is that we could spend a whole sermon series on the issue of forgiveness, uh, but here it tells us that we are to be forgiving. And what is basically forgiveness is releasing uh, somebody who's offended us from a penalty we would like to see them have. Uh, when we are offended, when we are hurt, uh, when we are crossed somehow or betrayed, uh, what do we think about? Automatically, we want to make it right. Because in our minds, uh, it was wrong. And we, in a sense of justice, we want to make it right. And we want to punish what we consider to be the person who offended us. And so uh, forgiveness begins in a vertical relationship between you and God. And it means to release the offender from the penalty that you would impose in giving them a and that's the word we get forgiveness begins. Because you may be in a situation where a person who offended you, they may not even know they offended you, and that's a very real possibility, but if it was purposeful, they may never come to you and ask for your forgiveness, and you've got to live with that. And so you, you deal with that, but you can release them and release the penalty that you think you would like to place upon them uh, to God himself and allow God to handle that. And then pray for the fact that there could be a restoration, reconciliation, uh, a, a <coughs> compassion for one another. Uh, the idea here is when somebody has offended you, you are to extend to them absolute and complete forgiveness. And again, that's a vertical exercise. You can go to that person 20 times and they'll never recognize they hurt you or they'll say, so what? Uh, you know, you're not responsible for that, but you are responsible for your own heart before God and how you're dealing with that. And the reason it is, is found in verse 32 there. Be kind to each other, tender heart, forgiving each other. What? Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Uh, when we're truly staggered by that one little phrase, it brings everything and snaps it into perspective. Our own hurt and our own pain and our own adversity and difficulty with other people snaps into perspective. Because Jesus Christ, we were enemies of his and he died in our place and he has offered us forgiveness 
We are given this position as a new man, as it says in verses 20 and 24. Believers are commanded to live differently with our speech, our thought, our walk, so as not to grieve the Holy Spirit and to be forgiving in those things. Uh, when I read these things, and this passage challenges me, hopefully as much as it challenges you, in this passage, this is the crux of the application of who I am in Christ. When it challenges me, I think of the words of the apostles and the disciples, excuse me, in Luke chapter 17, verse 5, where the Lord was telling them and teaching them about forgiveness and practicing forgiveness. And what was their response? Increase our faith. It was a prayer, wasn't it? Increase our faith, Lord. That is the only way we will ever accomplish what the Lord has led us and given us the privilege of following him in these verses. Increase our faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage. And Lord, we praise you.